would you open up to the book of Song of Songs, or if you prefer, Song of Solomon? And I'll touch, I'll say a few things about that in a minute. I'm going to, at points today, read from chapter 1 through to 2, verse 7. Song of Songs is a, a book in my Bible that moves quite a bit. I can never find it. It likes to be mis- mischievous. So if you go to the Psalms and Proverbs and go to the right, you'll eventually find it. Or go to your index at the beginning, and that will show you. You'll also notice in the screen at points there'll be Spanish translation. I do apologise to Norma and to Thomas if my Google Translator didn't work. Um, and you also hear Angie at times just translating for a mum and dad as well, just so you know. Um, but when I was a boy and my sister dragged me along to Queen's Park Baptist Church and I was encouraged to go to Queen's Park Baptist Church, there was something about Queen's Park Baptist Church and what, was go- what God was doing there and just how it matched up with me. At times as young guys, and I'm guessing I may have been 11 or 12, I wasn't 18 or 19, but I was 11 or 12, and we would sit at the back, bored, as wonderful preachers like Edwin Gunn and Jeff Grogan, incredible people, preachers, but as young guys, we couldn't really connect. As they were preaching away, no doubt something quite powerful, we would go to Song of Songs and send little notes to one another, and we had great fun, because it's quite a raunchy book. And it's raunchy enough that my family have said for the next five or six weeks I'm preaching on this, that they're not coming to church. (laughs) But, you know, and I was trying to find there just some of the the classics that we would send notes to, but I I can't find, you know. But it's things like pomegranates and breasts and navels and all sorts of things. We just found this very exciting when we were young kids sending each other notes. Um, So we had great fun with Scripture. But Song of Songs must have something significant to say to us. Um, Otherwise, why is it in Scripture and why would Jesus refer to Scripture uh, as being the Word of God? And, And quote from it, maybe not Song of Songs, I don't know that for a fact, but would constantly go back and quote, as would the apostles. This is Scripture. This is spirit-breathed. Yes, it's poetry. I am not a great fan of poetry. I like history more. I can understand it. It's more systematic. Poetry, like a song, just bounces all over the place. And you need to be quite intelligent to to understand it. Um, But it's still God's word. And although with much fear and trembling, because of the, the fear that I don't want to butcher this, that we open up Song of Songs. Our culture elevates sexual desire extremely high. In fact, our culture would say you should flaunt it and create whatever you want. We know that all too well. We may have just spoken about it uh, with friends or lamented over it or whatever it may be. However, generally on a Sunday from the pulpit, we don't talk about sex. From the pulpit? No way. Maybe in a youth gathering where we explore and we may even split the sexes up. Girls go with girls leaders, boys go with boys leaders and you explore what the Bible has to say about sex and desire and drive and and identity. But generally speaking, um, in fact, yeah, generally speaking, the pulpit 
isn't reserved from that, for that. And you can see uh, a brief history of, of sermons and just what some Puritan uh, preachers said about stuff like Song of Songs. They were terrified of it. it. It just was alarming to them. It was worldly to many of them. Not all, but many. And I guess we've still got a bit of that baggage um, but sexual desire really hasn't featured in our liturgy or in our preaching very much, certainly in this church family. It may be different from your own. But we open up its Song of Songs, and I want to note these things about this very important book. Songs is not in Scripture as a, a guidance on relational intimacy. We shouldn't go to this song, this poetry, and find out how to be relationally intimate with our spouse. Nor is it a counselling curriculum for marriage or family therapy. You know, I wouldn't encourage you just to bounce in here, take a verse out of context, and sit with a couple who are struggling to get on with one another, and use, use that as your guiding scripture. wouldn't do that. However, it is poetry, a song about love and intimacy and ultimately our connection with God, our Father. It contains, however, no references to God. There may be a slight allusion somewhere, um, and we may come to that as the weeks go on, but there's no references to God. And while it is, has got a backdrop of a festival, there is nothing about the Jewish calendar that we can see. However, Song of Songs, and that's um, how I will mostly refer to it, Songs or Song of Songs, is in Scripture and is in both the Jewish and the Christian canon. Again, I say it, it must have something important to say to us if we're brave enough to open it up. Bible translators can't agree on what to call this collection of songs. Song of Songs, someone referred to earlier on as Song of Solomon. Uh, the Canticles, which is Latin for songs. There's various names that various translators use to describe it. Who's got Song of Solomon in their Bible? Song of Songs. Canticles. There's no Latin speaking. No, there's no Latin. Oh, you've got, you, oh, Larry. Show off. However, no matter what we call songs, it has always been highly held. Here's Rabbi Aquaba, and he says, he's known as the, the chief of sages, and he said this about songs. All the pages are not worth the day in which the song of songs were given to Israel. All the writings are holy, but the song of songs is the holy of holies. And a quick glance at church history, and this is just three, I could mention so many more. Church have taken Song of Songs seriously, Oregon. Um, he produced 10 commentaries on the songs. Uh, by 1200, before the printing press, we had over 100 commentaries um, in circulation. And Bernard of Clairvaux um, wrote 86 sermons on songs, and he stopped at 
the end of chapter 2. I think closer uh, to our time, Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist uh, preacher down south, I'm pretty sure he wrote of passages of songs, eight, no, 56 sermons. So it has been preached, it has been explored because it's God's word and there's a lot there in songs for us to get out of it. But if you are going to look um, at songs to find something to do with um, God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit, if you're going to look at it as where's the theology in it as you're looking at church governance or the scriptures or our theology of mission, you're going to be hard-pressed. You might find allusions in there, but you're going to be hard find to, to find that sort of theology. Yet, is not love a theological topic? It's got a lot to say about love and desire, as St. John says in his first letter, God is love. So, and this is all introduction, uh, and I, apolog- I don't apologize, we need to look at this. Here are some responses to uh, songs, and there's a number of ways in which people have tried to uh, uh, respond to it. Some <coughs> have ignored it. <coughs> Origen actually thought it was a very dangerous book. <coughs> um, he encouraged those who were not strong-willed to stay a million miles away from it for what it could fire up within them. Passions that were uncontrollable. So if you were weak-willed, as Origen would say, in regards to sexual desire and your mind, and, and then he would just say, stay clear of it. He himself castrated himself because he struggled with sexual desire, I presume, and saw that as a way to uh, dampen down his libido. That's all I can think of. So some people have just chosen to ignore it because they've seen it as a dangerous book. Others have been embarrassed by it. It's too sexy. Far too sexy for the church. So they have read it primarily as a a love relationship between God and Israel. And there's a strong um, history of this. And then once we get into the age of the church, they've used it as uh, to look at the relationship between God and the church. And that would be allegorical way of reading it. For centuries, the church looked at Song of Songs in this way. It's not the way in which I am going to look at it at all. Um, Others have embraced it. They've seen it as a literal power description of romantic and sexual love between a man and a woman. I'm going to approach it as a love song and what the lover, the beloved is saying to her love and I will constantly get the two of those mixed up. I'll jump from the beloved to to the loved and I'll mix up uh, those titles but you'll just stay with me. But that's that's where I'm predominantly going to go with it. And in that, we will see illusions of God, of our standing before God. We will see things I am pretty sure that we struggle with that affect our relationship with God. And I hope that 
by God's Spirit, we would be encouraged to be in step with the Spirit. Or we will be uh, rebuked to repentance from what we read in songs and how we apply it to our own life as we reflect, reflect that we will see illusions of much bigger theological narratives uh, in here. So let's jump into verse 1. Okay? My scripture says, Solomon's Song of Songs. And the ESV says, the finest of songs about what is Solomon's. And the New Living Translation says, this is Solomon's Song of Songs. More wonderful than any other. Like songs, it just jumps in there. And I mean in the general term of songs. Um, I was at a concert last night and it was my daughter-in-law, Beth. Uh, she was supporting Jonathan Ogden. And although they explained what the songs were about roughly before they sang them, if you didn't know, you would just hear a narrative jumping into the mid-story, much like when an actor comes from stage left or stage right onto the, the centre of the stage, that actor is doing his or her job right if in those, even those first few words you know there's a backstory and you're intrigued to know what that backstory is. That's what it's like with songs. Just jumps right in there. And we find out right away that um, there's a big claim. <clears throat> well, first of all, I'll say this. Um, it claims to be Solomon's, first of all. And, and I'm okay with that if this is Solomon's uh, book and he wrote that. But 1 Kings 4 states that he penned at least 1,005 songs. Maybe God, by his spirit, chose to forget the majority of those and give us this one. However, I find it difficult to marry those two when he married 700 wives, women, and he had 300 concubines. So I find it difficult and just to rationalize that with all of his shenanigans how come we've got this song that states at the beginning that it's Solomon's song? I, I don't know what to do with that. All I can suggest is maybe, just maybe, he wrote this before he started marrying all of these different wives of different nations to gain power and, and to sow his wild, his wild oats. Or maybe he wrote this near the end of his life. I'm just reading between the lines, if I'm honest. Maybe in a time of repentance, he wrote such a story. Or maybe, just maybe, it's written in the style or in the honour of Solomon at that period of time. That may be something that you need to wrestle over. I'm just skipping over that. I, I'm intrigued, it's history, but I'm sticking over that. But here's something worth considering. Why was Solomon, who was so wise, such a fool when it came to romantic love? You know, he asked for to the Lord and he received it wisdom. But he was an absolute fool when it came to how to relate to the opposite sex. So such people exist. And I also want to state one other thing. That it says right at the beginning that this is Solomon's song of songs. More wonderful than any other. It's the finest of songs. 
Again, it's just, I've got no real thoughts on this. I'm intrigued. Here's one song in Scripture that's described as the best. And God is not mentioned in it. It is very good. And it's all about the relationship between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And that is in Scripture that is God-breathed. Song of songs, the finest of songs, has got something to say to us and our relationships. It is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that's just that first verse. Let's skip on quickly so that we're not here when the Scotland game comes on later on. (laughs) Okay, desire. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me to his chambers. So again, there's no backstory. We're just jumping right in here. There's no long introduction. The song bursts in with, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. I want to note this, that the Shulamite, or in my scripture as the beloved, and my notes I've put down the lover, so the Shulamite, the she, the woman, that she is not weak and passive here. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Yes. She does not initiate the kiss, but she welcomes it. She encourages the kiss of her lover. Why? Because it goes on to say, your love is more delightful than wine. Her desire for him is more refreshing and more intoxicating than wine. She is head over heels. She has a soulmate and she desires him. That is a good, good thing. And it is godly and it's righteous. righteous. She wasn't going up to him in an inappropriate way. So she wasn't a ladette. She wasn't a militant feminist. She wasn't changing roles or any of that. She says, let him. And she goes on about kissing, which is to do with touch and to do with taste. She goes on about fragrance, which is to do with smell. So all the senses, and she's speaking it out, and she's seeing with her eyes, she desires that. She desires her lover with all of her senses. It's intoxicating, it's passionate, it wells up, it is very, very good And she longs for him to take her to his chambers. Later on, she speaks of their bed as the cedars. So the lying in the ground underneath a tree, I'm guessing, caressing, stroking, kissing each other. But yet later on, they come to the marriage and they come to the the marriage chamber. Just now, it's just longing and it's desire and it's passion and it's everything good about a relationship between a man and a woman here in Scripture. So I would say in her approach, right at the beginning, these two verses, there is strength in her approach. Let him. But there is also surrender. He must want to. Okay, let him. 
Do you get that in there? Verse 3 um, says, um, what does verse 3 say? Yeah, your name is like perfume poured out. Name's important. The biblical idea of name is it represents a person's uh, character, not just a title, but a character. So the lover, has, the one she calls on, the one she refers to as your name is like perfume poured out and, and all of that, means that he is a person of high character, high calling. When we speak God's name, we know that God's name describes who he is. And, and that same idea is very much here in the first few words of songs. She's attracted not just to how he looks physically, but she's attracted to his soul as well. His nature, the way he approaches things, turns her on, fills her with great desire. Not just the touch, and maybe that does speak about how women approach that whole area, but how he woos her, how he positions himself, how he speaks, how he thinks, what he holds important. All of those things for her are sexual desire and she desires to be with him. And she goes on to say, no wonder the young women love you. And I would say, maybe just not for a woman, but my notes have put it down here as a woman. A woman, a wise woman, chooses a man that others see to be a man of character. It's important for us to choose people that others are saying, yep, he's a good egg. Yep, there's something good about him. I can see why you're attracted to him. And it's not a fake thing. I'm in a position in society and therefore I stand a little bit taller. It's not like my, my title of pastor puts me two steps higher to heaven. But it's what you see in my everyday. It's how you, you see in my vulnerability and how I've raised my children and how I love my wife and how I approach scripture and, and how I seek forgiveness, etc., etc. That sort of character she desired, she wanted so that when others spoke of him, they didn't turn their nose up or hold their nose. They actually, they saw, yep, you're right, hen. There's something good about him. There's something quite not right, and I would say this about a woman in particular. When a woman falls for a man with questionable character, and others notice it, but she refuses to listen because she knows they're, they're true him. I've seen that story play out a few times in my family and with close friends because love is a powerful force. And I have known people I've grown up with who have left their walk with Jesus because of love, family members and friends, because love is powerful. Desire, we need to be careful with it. So reputation is important because she was attracted to the physical and also to his soul. The Shulamite's desire here is not skin, skin deep. She fancies him, but her desire is built on the foundation of his character. And this, I think, is immensely practical. The couple who go on touching, kissing, 
caressing, complimenting wholeheartedly, relishing each other, will bless each other. And they're more likely to stick together and to be a positive advert for the love of Jesus in his church. And I say that to all the ages. The couples who understand one another, how each other are zipped up is so important as well. So that it's mutual. The couple who touch, kiss, caress, compliment, wholeheartedly relishing one another will bless each other and will be a good example for a loving relationship between a man and a woman. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. To love and to cherish until death do us part. We will physically fade away. Some of us will physically fill the mirror a bit more as the years go on. But don't build our marriage on that. Many of us have not done that. Character is a strong foundation to a fuller, more beautiful marital bond. Amen? I think that's right. Let's keep skipping on quickly. If I get the right slide up there. Yeah, right, let's go for this. This is important. I'm not going to go through right to uh, the end of uh, 2.6 or 2.7, but I'm going to skim over quite a bit. But let's read from, Take me away with you, let us hurry. Let the king bring me to his chamber. Um, the friends say, We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise you, your love more than wine. And the Shulamite says, or this could be the friends, how right they are to adore you. Dark, the, the Shulamite, she says this, dark I am, yet lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tents, the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyards I have neglected. And here you have vulnerability in relationships. How, love, how right you are uh, to adore, how, how right they are to adore you. So the, the, the beloved, the Shulamite, affirms what the daughters of, of Jerusalem see in her love, that they rejoice. So she's part of all that and she's enthralled by that and she agrees with it that he's a man of character and everyone can see it. But then she starts reflecting on her own anxieties. But am I worthy? How many, an aside, how many of us incorrectly, and I'm glad it came up today in prayers and declarations, where all too often we forget that Jesus says it is finished, that we are redeemed. He has saved us and he will continue to save us. We belong to Jesus, a new creation. How many of us forget that as we look at our infirmities and our failures? Oh Lord, have mercy in me, a sinner, should be on our lips. So that's just an aside as we think of our own unworthiness that can all too often keep us away from our beloved, creating a wall between us and God. She recognizes that she's lovely, but then she says, do not stare at me because I am dark 
like the tents of Kedar and the tent curtains of Solomon. I am darkened by the sun. And she's looking at how she feels. She's feeling based on how she looks. In our culture, we would say you're peely wally because we kind of have value. So we think if someone's got a good color to them, they either live down south or they're affluent and they're enjoying holidays and they're topping up their tan. Unless you're David Dickinson on the old uh, Antiques Roadshow who was under that sunbed far too long. But in our culture, generally, we value color and we slag people by calling them peely wally. Not so here. If you were dark-skinned, it meant that you were outside laboring for others. And actually here, her family were mistreating her to their own end. And pale skin meant you had wealth. Other people were out there doing all the dirty work while you were protecting your skin and being pampered. So the hardships of her life disfigured her. Maybe she felt, I am not qualified for his love. And we know this is a struggle. We know it's an internal struggle for many of us. It used to be a woman's battle because we elevated a certain form of women of what they, used to, what they should look like. And media and Hollywood encouraged that. But now, for a young guy growing up, there is this image that you need to be. And it's real, real pressure and real struggle. And now there's also a thing called the Jordan Peterson effect. Because young guys are fed up being told that they're not men. And they need to be all sorts of things rather than men. And I know, men, I know a handful of young guys who are rejecting that. And really identify with being a man. Unfortunately, that can go too far. And they can take that to to the wrong end. But the pressures on us in culture have always been there. Whether you grew up in the 60s or the noughties, they've always been there. I want to say this, you have worth. Genesis 1 says that we were created in the image of God. Genesis 2 speaks even more of that worth of how God breathed into our nostrils. Life. Psalm 139 verse 15, we know this speaks of how my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret and intricately woven in the depths of the earth. This language here is used for no other creature bar us. You are worth it. God knows you intimately. He created, he values you. So when you ask, what does God see in me? Answer with this truth. Answer yourself with this truth. If I look and I desire God, if I seek him with all my heart, mind, soul and strength, I am radiant. If I desire Jesus, restore unto me the joy of my salvation, renew a right spirit in me, we are radiant. Psalm 135, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Are you carrying shame? Drop it. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ and you still feel condemnation? You somehow need to drop that and maybe you need others to journey with you to help you drop that. 
Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour of his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the earth, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. These two passages have this in common. One, you're valuable. The Shulamite is valuable. And two, we must seek the Lord. And in that seeking, we find that we are radiant. And just finally, and this will be finally, despite our hardships, Despite her anxiety, in verse 7, we find that she says, Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flocks and where you rest your sheep at midnight, midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? She's seeking him, even though she feels rotten about herself. In the song, she says, I, don't, I guess she's saying, I'm reading between the lines, I'm seeking him, I want him, I desire him so much. And in verse 8, you see the, um, the response um, if you don't know, no, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. I've looked at translations where that is a response, not of the, the friends, but of uh, the uh, beloved. And so there is that idea of no matter how you feel, pursue. No matter what people are saying about you, no matter how people have treated you, pursue that which you love. Seek the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In verse 9, I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Historical studies have shown that Pharaoh um, had his chariots pulled by stallions. I'll read this again then. I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Can you imagine the chaos, the passion? Darling, this is how I think about you. You may feel yourself unworthy, unloved, but I liken you to a mare that's right bang in the middle of uh, Pharaoh's chariots and they are going wild. Such is the passion I have in you. Can you see an illusion of Christ's love for you and I today here? For God so loved the world, you and I, that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Passion is in both of those, uh, well, passion is in both passages of Scripture. My beloved, my love, you're an attractive woman who stirs up passion. And so from 10, on on, uh, 10 onwards, he even says that her cheeks are beautiful. I think I've put that up there. Uh, our friends speak about jewels and just affirming how glorious and how beautiful she is, even if culture is saying something other than that. Even if she has been mistreated with family, there is a lot of affirmation and deep truth being spoken here. 
And it's a, a love song. And I'm not going to read it, but what you have from verse um, 12 through to verses uh, chapter 2 and verse 6 is just lots of pillow talk. <laughs> lots and lots of pillow talk. Um, cluster of henna blossoms, um, sashes of myrrh resting beneath, between the breast, beauty, your eyes are like doves, your charming, our bed is verdant, um, etc. I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley, a lily among thorns, my darling among the maidens, apples of eyes, raisins, all sorts of things get thrown in there as two young lovers passionately express the love which is in their heart, the desire that is like a mare beside the stallions of Pharaoh's chariots and it's electric. No wonder the church was unsure of what to do with these scriptures. No wonder they were embarrassed. No wonder they thought it to be dangerous and yet it's God's word for us today. We've got lots and lots and lots to say about Song of Songs. We're going to do it over five or six weeks. But what you will find time and again is this verse that comes up in verse 7. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Our culture doesn't believe that in the slightest our culture believes try before you buy. Our culture, when I told friends, Christian friends as well, that Josh and Beth were getting married, my son's 24, been married three years, I had Christian friends that said, he's only 21. What do they expect? Do they expect that passion, that love, where, where uh, kindred spirits come together and of course they want to consummate that love. They want to live in that love. They want to be full in that love that they should just separate and try before they buy and check out if they really do love one another and whether they're sexually compatible. No. We encourage our children to marry late. Our culture encourages our children to marry late. I don't believe there's a word in Hebrew for bachelor. Don't know why that came to my mind. My Hebrew friend is not here to correct me. Love, passion is dangerous. We need to be careful with it. As many of us in here who are married, we need to be careful where our eyes go, where our hearts go. It's very easy for a pastor and a pastor's motives in encouraging a female to say all the right things and take them in the wrong ways. And many colleagues of mine have fallen because of that. Because love and desire is a very powerful thing. May it be seen in our families, in our relationships. May we know repentance, forgiveness. And I'm going to stop there because I've got lots to say. But we've got five or six weeks to go. Can I pray? before Richard comes up. <sighs> Father, I have brought more than I thought I was going to bring. With trembling knees, 
take, which is of you, and I pray that you would do a work deep in our souls. Have mercy on us, Lord. We thank you how you've made us in your image, male and female. And you say that part of creation was very good. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen.